Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Oren Zeslansky, founder and CEO of Flock Freight and a 20-plus year veteran in the logistics and transportation industry. Hey, Oren, how are you doing? I'm great, thank you. How about you? Doing fantastic. Now, the logistics space is definitely one that I think a lot of people take for granted. Uh, we use it every day, but we don't know a lot about it. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into the space in the first place? Yeah, I grew up around it. My parents worked in the household good industry, which is a subset of, of transportation logistics. You know, if we've all moved, we've all moved a few times. There's kind of nothing worse than the process of loading your furniture in and out of a truck. Um, it's very personal. Uh, these are your your household goods. They're oftentimes family heirlooms. So it, it tends to be a very passionate and engaged uh, industry. My parents worked in that, spent my whole life around it. And then um, when I was in high school, my mom left the employment of that company and started her own freight forwarder, which is a, a type of freight broker, a freight intermediary. By the time I got out of college, my dad had also left the employment of that company, started his own freight forwarder. So by the time I got out of college, um, I was sort of at the intersection of freight as a life, as a purpose, and entrepreneurship. It just all seemed very accessible, kind of akin to, you know, if my dumb parents can do it, how hard could it be? So I'm sure I can do it and I'll be fine. Little, I could tell you 25 years later, it's not so easy. Um, so when I was 21 years old, I started what we call a full truckload carrier. I started a trucking company, the big trucks who do, do the long haul transportation, you know, on the freeways, kind of running from LA to New York, uh, and thought that uh, it had unlimited potential. I like the tangibility of it. Seeing those trucks, admittedly, was probably a little gratifying from an ego perspective, but also the idea of, of, of significant scale. It's a massive market. And I really thought to myself, I'm going to build a really significant uh, freight business. Um, I did so uh, factoring my receivables. So I don't recommend that for the faint of heart. That's, I would call it legal loan sharking. That's borrowing money at about 22 to 23%. It was my source of seed capital. I, I, I wouldn't have understood things like equity financing at the time, nor would it, even if I had, would it have probably been available to me. Uh, so I started the first business uh, borrowing money. And actually for the listeners, can you go back in time a little bit and discuss what is the difference between a freight forwarder? What is LTL, FTL? Can you actually break down how the industry defines some of these categories? Yeah, we have what we call modes. So the most popular mode that most people would know is parcel or small package. That's kind of FedEx, UPS. I think everybody really understands that. Uh, there's other modes like LTL, which are less than truckload. There's the full truckload mode, which is filling up the whole truck. Other modes like ocean freight, which is big steel containers moving on the water, air freight, um, household goods. Uh, if, if you think about the best way to describe LTL, uh, which is where I currently spend my time is to think is actually to use UPS or FedEx as an example. So for the listener, if I, if I ask you to conjure in your mind what the belly of the beast of UPS looks like, you're right. It really does look like that. If anything, it looks looks a little worse. It's big trucks and little trucks and warehouses and terminals, forklifts, 
labor aircraft. Like I think most people probably have some image of all that and they're actually very, very accurate. The less than truckload industry is not the movement of parcels, but rather the movement of pallets. So if you had four pallets of some widget that you manufacture and you needed to ship it from LA to Chicago, um, it's kind of too big for UPS, too small to fill up a big truck. So you're in this middle land called LTL. It's not so small. It's $65 billion a year in the United States, 165 million LTL shipments. That would physically move over a hub and spoke infrastructure, which is a fancy way of saying it looks like UPS. Big trucks, little trucks, warehouses, terminals, forklifts, labor, no aircraft. So aircraft isn't part of the ground transportation uh, of LTL, but it is super capital intensive. It's really, really gritty. Uh, if you want your four pallets to get picked up in LA, it's going to pick up today or maybe tomorrow or the next day. I mean, like who can say? It's it's not a high precision industry. Um, it will move through three to 10 terminals uh, between you at origin and the ultimate destination. It's kind of making its way across country in the way that you imagine, you know, imagine your, um, your tracking notification from Amazon and you can kind of see it went from one city to the next city to the next city to the next city as it's making its way across country. LTL is doing the exact same thing. Um, there are, so those are kind of the modes of transportation. Then there's sort of what I'll call the positions within the industry. There is the shipper, which shipper and carrier get confused all the time. So the, the, the way that I think about it is the shipper is the person who ships the freight off their dock. So the shipper is like the manufacturer. They're the person who makes things. Uh, they have a need to buy transportation services. We would call them the shipper. The carrier is otherwise known as the trucker. The carrier is the one who carries those goods from the shipper to the destination, whatever the destination is. It's usually the customer of the shipper. Uh, freight forwarder is a type of broker that tends to take more sort of ownership, uh, a more holistic ownership over the movement of the goods. Um, you have now sort of more exotic, what we call managed transportation providers, which are really brokers who are kind of the middleman in between supply and demand, demand being that shipper, that manufacturer, supply being the, the trucker or the carrier, uh, and the brokers like a freight intermediary connecting those two. It is a relatively thin value prop, although it is one that has existed for 100 years in this country. There are people like us and others that are working to drive value. And instead of just saying, I will take widget A from the shipper and give that same widget A to person number B, Rather, we have an algorithmic carpooling model where we're like repackaging all these things. We're taking all these various freight shipments, sticking them together using tremendous software. And instead of moving it through that hub and spoke, that big truck, little truck warehouses, forklifts, terminals sort of environment, just having it be like an Uber pool or a lift line car ride in the big truck where it moves those things um, across the United States. The managed trans provider on the broker is, I think, to some degrees, a response to people like us that are entering the market using technology to fundamentally change the way the freight moves. And they're trying to take ownership over the shipper and say, hey, Mr. Shipper, don't worry about it. We'll, um, there's terms like 3PL, third-party logistics. Now there's 4PL, fourth-party logistics. So the idea is imagine you are uh, you're Kimberly Clark, you know, you're Procter & Gamble. You have a very complicated global supply chain. Um, it can be challenging at best for you to find lots of different vendors and providers to work for you. So there's these pure management firms that now come in and say, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it uh, for you. Uh, you know, everybody competing to hopefully add value as opposed to just take value. 
Hmm. The 4PL piece is interesting because that was actually going to be the next question is, you know, um, I definitely understand to some extent how 3PLs work, but from an end-to-end process, you have somebody that's manufacturing a widget in China, let's call it, getting it all the way to the end customer, whether it's a direct, you know, consumer like me or whether it's a business, how many middlemen does it touch and how many different, you know, from the, I guess, the manufacturer to the shipper to the freight forwarder, what does that process actually look like? Yeah, so we use the example of of China to the central United States, China to Chicago, like Shenzhen, big manufacturing hub. So there's a few ways it can happen, um, but the two primary modes would be either air freight or ocean freight. So somebody like an Apple might be using air freight because they've got incredibly high margin on their devices. Uh, they've got long lines at the stores, um, and they need to get that things those devices over to be sold very quickly. So what they'll do is they'll contract with an air freight forwarder. Uh, which is, again, kind of like a broker. That person will then work with the local transportation at a factory in China to get that uh, those goods moved from the factory to the airport. Um, they'll then have to use customs brokerage, who has to handle all the customs paperwork, making sure that you know, duties and tariffs, it's a very big point of conversation these days. But but even in normal times, so to speak, it's it's still a very real thing. And those the paperwork's got to be documented just right. It's then boarded upon an aircraft. That aircraft is not operated by the air freight forwarder. They've contracted it out. So believe it or not, just like you could book a, a truck to haul your freight, you can book an aircraft um, to fly it. And there are specialty air cargo uh, carriers out there. They'll fly it to, you know, Alaska, clear customs there, make sure the paperwork once again and, and the tariffs and duties have been paid, release those goods, fly it from Alaska down to, you know, a major hub. If it's FedEx doing the work, it's going to Memphis. If it's UPS doing the work, it's going to Louisville, Kentucky. Um, again, has to clear custom or, um, you know, be processed. It's, it's cleared in Alaska. I apologize. It has to then be um, stripped from the aircraft, broken down. They have to figure out where's everything going because imagine it's all like landed in Memphis, but it's being sent in 360 degrees out of that destination, right? It's not all destined to Memphis. It's just, that's the port of embarkation into the lower 48 States. Now it's uh, put into what we typically call a three PL environment, third party logistics, which is otherwise we call it sort of pick and pack, like figure out what's going where, get those things loaded. Um, and then now you see the LTL conundrum, the pallets of these things kind of meandering their way across country. Um, conversely, if it's an ocean freight solution, which is much, much more common, the vast majority, and I'd want to be clear about this, of goods flowing from Asia to the US are coming on the water. They're not going by air. Air is enormously expensive. So air, air is the solution at the intersection of very high margin and a need for tremendous speed iPhones, you know, that makes sense. But for your typical industrial, uh, industrially manufactured goods, furniture, clothing, apparel, like all the things that we think of, of China as our trade partner manufacturing for the United States, those are typically low margin and they don't necessarily have, you know, 10,000 people waiting in line at an Apple store to, to get their hands on it. So uh, once again, you'd have to arrange for domestic transportation. It's a very similar process. Get it to the, the port. Um, you'd have to do all the customs and duty work. You have to then, in this case, it's a little more complicated. You have to load what we, they, believe it or not, they still call them steamship containers. These are not steamships, <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> they are uh, diesel powered, you know, massive uh, vessels. Um, but we, we do still call them steamships. So they would load those 40 to 53 foot uh, aluminum cans 
um, otherwise known as steamship containers, get those loaded. Um, and then, you know, big cranes loading those onto the vessel. It's about a called a three week sailing from, uh, from China, from mainland China over to the West coast of the United States coming into either Oakland or, or Port of Long Beach would be the most common, uh, places to come into, although some going to Seattle, um, and then it gets really interesting from there for, for people who like unsexy in the planes, trains, and automobiles pursuit. Now we can even bring the rail into this, which is really quite cool. So the freight forwarder can buy what we call a landed rate from China to, let's say, Chicago. But you can imagine if you picture the globe that you know Chicago, I mean, it is accessible by ocean through the St. Lawrence and all that over on the Atlantic side. But if the goods have come from Asia... How are you going to do it? Um, it's going to land in Long Beach, in all likelihood, it's the, the biggest port in the U.S. Uh, the steamship containers are unloaded. They clear customs and duties, um, you know, all kinds of complexity there. Uh, it's what's called a drayage process. And then you unload or strip the can, strip the container, take the goods out of that. Then it gets repackaged um, or palletized, put onto um, it can either be put onto domestic like LTL or truckload transportation if you have enough quantities, or that entire rail, um, that steamship container, um, can actually, that, that, that uh, uh, rectangular box that you could probably conjure in your mind, um, can be loaded completely intact onto what's called a rail pig, if you can imagine. <laughs> um, and it, it then gets loaded uh, onto the train. And so the train will then take it from LA to, let's say, Chicago. Then you pull the, the container off, put it onto a chassis, which is like the bottom half of the trailer. So uh, not all, but many of these tractor trailers, these big trucks you see on the highway, some of them are the trucks you think they are. It's like a trailer for loading cargo and then the power unit, the tractor that connects to it. But sometimes it's not that. It's this steamship container loaded onto the chassis portion, and they're like Legos, and they stick together. And then it can be tied to a power unit or a tractor, hauled to probably a third-party logistics or 3PL warehouse, everything unloaded, palletized, and then doing local distribution. Um, I can't even keep count of how many people are involved in this process. I mean, it, it, is, it is unbelievably complex, lots of moving parts. By the way, almost no ubiquitous standards for data and information and transparency. So there are people, I'm not necessarily one of them, but I'm a keen observer of it who are trying to solve, you know, I just want to know where my thing is. You know, exactly. Where's my, where's my stuff? Yeah. You're like barcodes, RFID. That's very old, mature technology. It's like, Oh yeah, no, it is. That it's, it's, that's not the problem. The problem is like adoption and a ubiquitous standard because you've got, we can quickly kind of tally them up. You've got this manufacturer in Shenzhen. You've got this local transportation guy who takes it to the port. You've got a drayage guy at the port who's, getting these things loaded into containers. You've got a customs guy involved in that process. You now have like the longshoreman loading this thing onto, we'll just say a steamship to a vessel. It's then now moving across the water. And then you have that whole process in reverse. Yep. It's got to be pulled off the vessel. It's got to be unloaded, maybe put on the rail. Uh, you can easily have 10 to 12 parties involved in getting your, you know, Ikea is a bad example, right? As I'm looking at my Ikea desk here in front of me, but you know, getting your, your kind of low cost um, item from China into your home or into your office. Well, and then it require not only a standardization of technology, but every single one of those middlemen would have to also purchase that and use it, which I can't even imagine how com complex that is in the, um, okay. So in the LTL space, 
you seem to plug in after it gets put into any kind of 3PL ecosystem. So are your customers the 3PLs, the original manufacturers, or something different? Our customers are almost always the actual manufacturer. So the person who makes the the goods, I, I kind of affectionately say the stuff and things. I've seen a lot of stuff and things in my career. Um, and they make it and they have a need. They're located in LA. They're located in Chicago, Dallas, Atlanta, New York, you know, all throughout the United States. They need those things shipped to the customer who purchased it from them. So it could be a customer of ours who's the largest almonds manufacturer in the world. They, um, they you know, manufacture kind of in air quotes almonds. Um, it's then packaged in the way that you can exactly imagine and then located or loaded into boxes on the pallets. We would pick it up at their kind of processing or distribution facility um, and then take it maybe to a Costco, to a Walmart, to an Amazon, to a Whole Foods or to a wholesale uh, wholesale food supplier as well, wholesale distributor. So now, you know, now it's going to them and then he's breaking it down, him or her, and then they're doing the last mile distribution. There are times where we're doing it. Um, so, but it's primarily manufacturers. We also though do business with distributors who will go back to the Asia example. They've purchased at bulk, um, couches, you know, made in, in China. Uh, and I don't know who the Chinese manufacturer is. We don't, we don't see that. We don't have any interface with that. They've bought it and all these things are now in Long Beach or in the Inland Empire of Los Angeles. And they're contracting us to pick up at their facility there and take it to whomever their customer is, which is either... Yet again, another reseller, which is really what a distributor is, right? Somebody who's taking that good and selling it to somebody else, uh, or we're taking it direct to an end user, whoever is ultimately consuming it. But even then, let's face it, unless it's going around into your house or into your office, it's always being resold. And given the lack of transparency just described in the previous, you know, previous part of the conversation, how do you even know when there's a you know, stack of pallets ready for you guys from your customer? So one of the biggest conundrums we had to solve in our year one was when you have a pooling um, product, it's all about like density and liquidity. You want volumes to put together, right? Where one plus one equals three. One plus zero is still one. I can't do anything with that. So we want visibility. We want advanced notice. We want to understand. So we'd go to the manufacturer and we would say, hey, Mr. Manufacturer, you make this widget. You've got a factory right there. Can you tell me what you're going to ship tomorrow? That'd be very helpful. Uh, you, you've, you've quoted it already. You've decided you're going to, I'm your provider. Thank you for the opportunity. It's, uh, it's Wednesday or Tuesday. It's Tuesday. Can you tell me what I'm going to be picking up Wednesday? And they, and I needed to know this because the technology to put these carpools together is like super complicated. It takes some time. It, it, it that it, certainly back then it took a lot of time. Um, and their answer was, oh no, we can't tell you. We don't know what we're shipping tomorrow. And you would say, well, with all, with all due respect, I mean, I think you do. Um, how can we help? And what we found was this very practical, very unsexy limitation of, well, no, okay, so look, we do know that we're shipping um, 50 tables you know, that we've made, but what we don't know is exactly what the dimensions are going to be when we load them up onto pallets, we shrink wrap them, we put metal band around it. Um, a lot of LTL costing and therefore pricing is based on dimensions, weight, and density. Density is an interesting one. No need to get into the details of that, but but it's very important uh, to everybody in the industry. So they were basically saying, I know I'm going to ship 50 tables, but I don't always ship 50 tables. Sometimes I ship 49, sometimes I ship 51, and I can't give you the data that you need in order to know what's going on tomorrow. And I thought, well, that that's that's a problem. <laughs> you know, like that, that's like actually 
as silly as that is, it's like an existential threat to this business, right? Because I'm not in the let's just send a truck by every couple hours and see what you got, throw it on the truck or not business. I'm in the algorithmic optimization, like precision rocket science business. So um, instead, we invented something. It's really changed behavior. That doesn't sound like a big deal. And my team four years later doesn't think it's a big deal. But at the time, we were pretty proud of ourselves. Instead of saying to the customer, hey, it's Tuesday. Can you tell me what we're going to pick up on Wednesday uh, to get one day of lead time? Instead, we would wait until Wednesday and we'd say, what do you have for us today? And they're like, this is what I have, very specifically. I'd say, great, thank you. I'll knock 3% off if you allow me to pick it up tomorrow instead of today. Mm, interesting. It's such a silly little you know, yes, nuanced difference. It's a hack, and so it's a, it's a hack. So now we sell what we call inflex, which means like it's today, it's got to pick up today. And we offer financial incentives to do flex one or flex two. Because we're a pretty great data organization, we experimented out flex three, flex four, meaning give me today or tomorrow would be flex one. Flex two is today, tomorrow, the next day. We experimented with flex three, four, five, and we kept doing ever um, increasing discounts or ever decreasing price points to, to nudge and encourage that behavior. And not only is it a problem where you're discounting so much that you've destroyed you know, your, your economic value prop, um, but also that um, the, the, the outcomes of the carpool, we call the combinatorics, weren't that much better at some point like it just kind of flattened out it asymptoted so instead we realized that like flex one flex two was really the sweet spot for us and we could apply an appropriate level of discounting so we couldn't see it we had to change behavior and create an incentive in this case uh, really just a purely financial incentive in order to give the customer a reason to provide us the data that we needed um we were really transparent about it they didn't really understand it then i think they do now at the time they sort of thought you're just trying to give yourself operational flexibility. Like you're not sure you can pick up my freight today. Mm -hmm. You think you need today and tomorrow in order to be able to pick it up. And we said, well, I mean, no, but sure. I mean, yes, having more time makes this easier. I mean, there's no doubt about it, but that's not really why we're giving you 3% off or 5% off. That's a lot of money in, in any industry, let alone in the freight industry. We're doing it for the data in a way though. And this is one of the, if, if you're into unsexy businesses, it's taking really, really complex subject matter, really complex concepts, and turning them into very simple, relatable bites that your whatever the audiences you're speaking to can really take in well. So for us to talk about the non-linearity of the combinatorics of our solvers and how that's affected by liquidity, you know, was not the right way to communicate with our with our customer base, but rather to say, hey, uh, can you give me a day or two of flexibility because it's going to help me create a carpool for you? But uh, for in in return, that's the take, right? The give is I'll knock a few bucks off it. Uh, do we have a deal? And then visualizing that within the product, so the customer could very simply shop and say, "There's a time and a place for stand or for uh, inflex, and there's a time and a place for flex one and flex two. So we spend a lot of time uh, taking some some parts of the business that are actually quite sexy, even though it's a little antithetical uh, to this. Um, and, and believe it or not, making them look, sound, and feel unsexy, which is kind of the big tragedy of my life because I spent 20 years in, in unsexy traditional freight. I'm finally running a sexy business, yet I do a lot of, I, we put a lot of effort into making it look unsexy. It's actually fascinating. I think it's with the majority of industries outside of some, you know, bleeding edge, you know, like, you know, next gen tech is obfuscating the complexity is actually what really drives business. Your customers don't care about what you're doing. They want to know how are you helping them. And by being able to do that and also, you know, build the tech underneath it, that's kind of how you scale the business. 
yeah, we made mistakes in the beginning. Uh, we're making mistakes now, but, um, you know, features versus benefits, right? I mean, you know, kind of Apple is famous for saying, um, you know, I don't know how much RAM or what the clock speed is of the processor in the phone. Um, what I know is it's just easy to use and it always works, right? Android, uh, which, you know, it's not really Android, right? As much as it's Samsung and LG and all the OEMs, but but Android's posture is more of like features. Like we have a lot of horsepower, uh, we have a lot of uh, RAM in there. We have how many megapixels the camera has. And, and it's great. It speaks to an audience, right? I mean, there's more Android phones in the world than there are uh, Apple phones, largely likely driven to price point. But well, I made the mistake of selling algorithms you know, to a customer or trying to, I should say, and very quickly realizing my customers are not buying algorithms. They're buying high quality. They're buying low cost. They're buying ease of use. We use that software and it's tremendous complex software. In fact, sometimes whether it's fundraising or working with my own investors or board and my own team, I think I don't spend enough time actually speaking to the complexity of what we've done because we have absolutely invented things. Um, we've, we've, we've constrained math in ways that's never been done before. We know that because you file patents and they tell you it's never been done that way before. So, you know, many, many PhDs and mathematicians and data scientists, it's really complex work, but I pride myself on our team's ability to go to a manufacturing uh, persona and audience and say, I can, I can give you the same high, high quality as truckload, but when your trucks aren't full, I'll, I'll save you a bunch of money. Or I can say to them, when you have these smaller LTL shipments, I'll give you much higher quality than anybody else. We, we will not use that hub and spoke. We'll give you very high quality, pick up on time, deliver on time, no loss, no, no damage, no theft. Um, and I'll charge you a little bit more for it. Um, you know, they, well, how do you do that? That sounds too good to be true. Well, we, we're going to carpool your freight. We're going to put your freight with other customers' freight. We're actually now um, really uh, blazing trail on something that we're calling shared truckloads. So we talked before about modes. LTL, less than truckload, FTL, full truckload, PTL, partial truckload. Um, we're now um, innovating. Um, we made this up. I, that, I'll admit it, and that's fine. Um, but I think it clearly articulates to our audience in a very simple way, STL, shared truckload. Uh, the idea that for the first time ever in the history of the world, as it relates to transportation, the shipper now can decide how they want their freight to move. The shipper can buy shared truckload from us and decide that they would rather their freight share space on a big truck with some other de-identified customer because it's going to be a much, much higher quality and much lower cost versus saying, um, I'm going to go to the LTL carrier. And honestly, I don't know how they do it. They may be using two terminals. They may use 10. They could go direct. They do that every now and then. Uh, but it's really at the sole discretion of the carrier. That's how this industry works. It's at the discretion of the supply side, the carrier. We've now innovated a product and a model and a mode, we feel, that says, no, if you buy the shared truckload product from us, we call it Flock Direct because it's direct, it doesn't go through any intermediary terminals, um, where the shipper can now make that decision and control their own fate. So it's, it's again, I could, I could do a, a venture capital fundraising pitch with you know, the smartest people um, in, that you're ever going to meet. And the reality is it takes 45 minutes of a finely tuned story and visual aids, you know, a deck to ultimately drive home what it is we do and why we do it. Um, it's not a reflection of the audience. It's a reflection of the complexity of what we do. Um, and, and that just doesn't work, right, when you go to industry. So we go to industry, to the supply side of industry, the demand side of industry, and we say, we're selling a shared truckload product. And they're like, oh, okay, I get it. 
I get what that is. And not only do I get what you're doing, but I'm understanding why. I'm understanding, oh, if I share a truckload, I don't have to pay for part of it. I don't have to pay for the whole thing. That's going to save me money. And I'm like, uh-huh. And they go, and if you move it to share truckload, you're never going to load and unload it. It's never going to get damaged. You're not going to lose anything. There'll be no theft. And it's probably going to pick up and deliver on time. And I say, hey, thanks. You sound like one of my salespeople. You know, I love it. So, um, and again, it, it, it used to, I'll be really honest, um, used to take a little piece of my soul to finally get to work on something really sexy and really sophisticated and really excited. And I think my ego wanted some credit for that. You know, I think my ego wanted people to say, wow, you guys are really smart. That sounds complicated. Um, I don't think everybody, I don't think anybody ever built a really successful, significant disruptive business because people thought it was complex um, or, or sexy for that matter. I mean, Amazon, I have a pretty good sense because I sort of, you know, run in those circles is an awfully complex business, but it's successful because I can go on my phone and just push my fat finger on something and it shows up the next day and I don't even know how it happened. It's simple. And they build me, I guess. I don't know. You know, they've, they've made it all so straightforward. Even on the shared resources side, right, with AWS, essentially, it's the same concept, right? It's as opposed to me having my own server, I can now share a server and I pay less, I get the same quality or even better quality. But ultimately, I don't really care how it's working. I just want to know that the benefit I'm getting is, you know, better resources, paying less. Same thing with, you know, Uberpool, LiftLine. Um, can you talk without giving away any of the secret sauce? Can you describe a little bit about how it actually works to do the optimization yeah. of pooling freight? Yeah. So we talk about, you know, we have an algorithm. Uh, we have 14 of them. You know, it's, it's not one. Wow. Uh, we've been working on it for six years. Um, so without getting, without nerding out too much, uh, what's hard to bend your mind around is you think of it as uh, simply stated, I have three shipments, one, two, and three. And I could order it one, two, three. And we have to put it into what's called LIFO sequence. LIFO is an acronym that stands for last in, first out. So if you imagine what the truck looks like you see on the road. We call it a tractor trailer. If you imagine that trailer, the first thing into the front of the trailer, the very first thing you'd put in all the way up to the front, we call the nose. The last thing you'd put on the back where the doors are, we'd call the tail. Uh, the last thing I put on has to be the first thing that comes off, right? Makes sense. I've packed it in order. I've got to unpack it in order. And just assume there's no way to reorder those things because that's basically the conundrum that we're in. So LIFO in itself creates an enormous constraint uh, for the technology. Uh, it's, it, but it's not as simple as saying one, two, three, cause maybe you could go two, one, three, and maybe you go three, two, one, and you can go one, three, two, right? Like there's these different configurations and you're like, okay, but like, how hard could that be now put thousands of shipments in there? Mm -hmm. Um, the, we call it the search space blows up and it's nearly infinite. You can run a nearly infinite number of combinations of even just a few thousand, uh, shipments in our solvers. So you have to slice it and constrain it more and more because you can imagine, just picture a carpool. I live in San Diego. Let's say I want to come from San Diego to San Francisco and on a carpool. We're, we're imagining this. So it might, yeah, like ideally, and let's say we have three seats to fill. Ideally, we do three pickups in San Diego and we would all drive to San Francisco and we would all get off in San Francisco. That would be an optimized, what we call like clustered um, carpool. Uh, okay. If we can't do that, it's not so bad to have a pickup in San Diego and then a pickup in maybe Orange County and then a pickup in LA and then drive everybody to San Francisco. Now you can imagine now it's one in San Diego, one in LA, uh, one in, I don't know, San Jose, and then a delivery in the San Jose guy is really just going to Oakland, right? He's just catching a short ride. Uh, and then, uh, this, the second delivery goes into San Fran. That's the idea. But actually, the, the very first person to get in needs to go all the way to Redding, California. 
So, but what would be a disaster is this carpool, but there's also another group of carpoolers going from Miami to Jacksonville, Florida. You, you would not want to make a pickup in San Diego, drive all the way to Miami, make a pickup, <laughs> drive all the way back to LA, make a pickup, drive all the way back to Jacksonville, right? So you create these routes. So you constrain the way the, solve, the solvers work to say, we don't want the search space to be infinite. It would just take forever to come up with solutions. So you start slicing it and constraining it. Um, but the complexity of what we do is actually much, much, much harder than Uber, Pool, and Lyft line. And the best example I can give you, and again, we know this because we, we have patents they don't, which is, I think, kind of cool. Um, the uh, Uber, we'll just use Uber and Lyft. We'll, I'll use them synonymously. Uh, from a technology and algorithmic perspective, they're they pretty synonymous. Uh, Uber, in their algorithmic constraints, does not have to consider uh, our age, our gender, our height, weight, uh, religious beliefs, political interests, you know, they don't have to consider any of those things. We are human widgets to them. I don't mean that pejoratively. I mean, that's just a fact. They also don't have to consider if you get in the back seat or the front seat. That's just kind of a preference and a capacity issue of the car, right? But it doesn't, they just say we have three seats available. Um, and they know that one of three is full, but they don't know where that person's sitting, nor do they care. Uh, they don't consider if you get in on the right side of the car or the left side of the car. They don't consider if you get in on the right side of the road or the left side of the road. None of those are constraints. In the world of freight, those are all constraints. We have to think about the length, width, height, density of the freight. We have to think about um, what's called an NMFC code. Like what is this freight is actually important to the movement of freight because you can't put almonds with gasoline, right? Mm -hmm. In the same trailer. Like one is considered hazardous materials, hazmat. The other one needs food grade, you know, so that's a problem. Um, We we have to know... um, the insurance value, right? Because freight's a world where things break and you need to make sure that you're insured for it. There, there are, and then, you know, if you have a standard dock height and if you need what's called a lift gate, it's like an elevator on the back of the trailer. I mean, there's, there's all these variables, which we call constraints, meaning a constraint is like making it smaller, saying, gee, I would have liked to have put almonds with gasoline because they were both in San Diego, both going to San Francisco right at the same time. Wow, that would have been amazing. But hey, bad news, you can't. Like, <laughs> you just can't. It's absolutely not an option. One needs food grade, the other one is hazmat. So um, the, the, the combinatoric work, the math that we have to do um, is, is significantly like a step function more complicated. And once again, it's, that's actually some really sexy stuff. Our head of algorithms came from DARPA where he was working on, you know, like things he can't tell us. Uh, I'm sure they were very, very interesting. Um, but, you know, we have learned to message it in a very like, hey, share a truck and save money and improve quality. Hmm. That is fascinating. I would have never thought about the constraint of what materials go inside. You know, all the packing and stuff makes sense. One really random question, but as you were describing the, you know, last in, first out conundrum, which makes total sense given the way a truck is, how come there's never been a truck where the side is like a sliding door? And so you can kind of pack things in that way. Yeah, um, I, I love your question. Uh, there, there are, they do exist. Um, they're just not, I don't want to say they're not mainstream. I mean, you will see one in the next month on the road. You have seen them. Uh, you're you're going to be looking at trucks, I think, a little differently going forward through a different lens. Um, they do exist. I call them tarp-sided trailers where the, the whole side of the trailer is like a very thick, heavy-duty tarpaulin that can roll up. Um, 
what it is, is it's basically what we call a flatbed trailer. A flatbed trailer is where there's just a floor. And that's when you see on the highway, like a really big piece of machinery, uh, maybe a giant, like, um, underground plumbing tube, you know, that's like massive. Uh, there's no way to stick it inside a regular trailer. They'll move it on a flatbed trailer, strap it down. Uh, a, a tarp sided trailer is basically the same thing. It's just a roof and a floor. Um, and then they have these tarp sides and you can lift them up. So the, in theory, a tarp sided trailer uh, would allow us to remove uh, the LIFO constraint, the last in first out constraint, um, which would be massive for us from an efficiency standpoint and, and to be blunt about it from a contribution margin, from a profitability standpoint, it would be uh, a game changer. So it's one of those things in my, um, my single-minded pursuit to change the world uh, that I, I want to be a part of, be a change agent and see that happen. The, the challenge, number one, is they're, they're, they're a specialized piece of equipment. So, you know, we're not so big right now that I can convince trucking companies or independent truckers to buy that trailer so that they can haul more freight from me. I hope to, to do that. You know, like that's part of what we expect to do is become, you know, you see this with Amazon, you see this with Walmart, right? You want to do a business with Walmart, you have to meet their requirements. Um, nobody yet says so much that if they want to do business with flock freight, they have to meet our requirements, but, but that is a business we hope to build. There are some practical problems with it. Again, I'll nerd out on freight. So, um, imagine these big trucks are quite tall, right? About 40 inches high off the ground. You, you may never have thought about that, but you, you can't just, um, it's not like your trunk, you know, it's much higher, right? Um, so all the loading and unloading docks in this country are kind of built to the same standard. Now, over time, very old ones, newer ones, there's there's some differences there, and there's some ways of accommodating that. But basically, it's peanut butter and jelly, right? The docks are all built to the same height, and the trailers are all built to the same height, so that you can back into, or we call it bump that dock, and create a nice flush uh, area where a forklift can drive off a dock straight into the trailer to unload that trailer. Pretty straightforward. Um, imagine now if you're unloading or loading from the side of the trailer. So now I bump that dock. But that's not the point because I don't want to get to the freight on the tail. I want to get to something in the middle, let's just say, or something in the front. So now it's not about bumping the dock. It's about just pulling into the yard, uh, the, the, the parking lot, so to speak, of the manufacturer, the receiver. Um, so limitation is, yes, I can open up the walls of the trailer. But now I need to bring a forklift in on the side, if you can imagine that, to unload. Because just imagine everything in freight is heavy. Like it just is. You know, uh, 2,000 pounds per pallet would be a very, very normal number. You know, 1,500 pounds, very normal. Well in excess of anything a human can lift. So when you really start thinking about broad applications, really significant scale, uh, you know, we can't always ensure that shippers and receivers always have forklifts uh, available or space in their yard to load and unload from the sides. Now, you'd say, well, you got it on there in the first place. Why can you not assume they can unload it? Um, there are other tools like pallet jacks, which you've probably seen like in a Costco, somebody's pushing what looks like forks of a forklift, but they're just pushing it with their hands and they're hydraulically operated. It's not like a big uh, forklift machine you drive. It's more like a push cart, right? That has forks on the front. So th there's, there's challenges with rolling it out at, at scale, both in terms of the shipper and receiver's ability to load and unload from the side of a trailer, as well as the the trucking or carrier community deploying those trailers. But you've peeked into my long-term roadmap as to um, how we change this whole industry is tarp sided trailers are a huge game changer for us. No, it's cool. And it's also here. It's cool to hear you 
talk through all the dependencies, what I'm finding in a lot of legacy industries, whether it's construction or insurance or things that have been around for hundreds of years, so many different things have been built up to prop up this ecosystem that changing one involves changing this entire, you know, chain of reactions uh, afterwards. So that makes a lot of sense. And I didn't think through the whole thing. No, I mean, I'll throw in, I was just having this conversation with one of my vice presidents here about, um, you know, the continent of Africa is absolutely massive, right? Like more than 2x the size of the United States. And um, from a technology deployment and development standpoint, it had lagged uh, a lot of the Western world. So when telco, like just the basic ability to make phone calls and transmit data, uh, got to the point where the, the, the African continent needed that, um, we had laid copper wire all over Europe and uh, much of Asia and, and certainly North America. Africa kind of jumped over copper wire. They didn't lay cable. They went straight to wireless. Um, to a certain degree, satellite, but really more just cellular. Um, it's a strange thing to think. Like You think of things as being foundational, right? Like Of course, you have landlines at first as an invention, and then we figured out cell phones. And that's absolutely true. But what if today there was a part of the world that had no access to phone service? You wouldn't lay cable. You wouldn't uh, use landlines. I mean, you could, but that'd actually be more work. What you would do is you just put a cell tower up every so many miles um, and go straight to wireless. You would jump over that kind of more rudimentary technology. And so we're constantly thinking about that too. Like we talked about the standards of getting freight from Asia to your home. And it, it's not like a technological problem in and of itself that we don't have the tech to do it. It's an adoption problem. It's a standards problem. It's, there's too many different suppliers. These are different companies. It's very difficult to say. It's not as vertically integrated as people think. They have this imagination that like FedEx picked up the freight from the manufacturer. FedEx then drove it themselves. They loaded it to their own plane with their own people. They landed it. They, you know, they did everything themselves. And FedEx is really vertically integrated. I mean, you know, as is DHL and, and UPS. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. But it is still only about $150 billion worth of a $7 trillion global supply chain. Just to give a sense of like, it's, it's small, right? Like it's a fraction of what's really happening. So the founder in me thinks, well, let's just invent something. Like, how do we skip over doing those things? Um, and so one of the things that I'm thinking about from a, from a, a telemetry and visibility and transparency standpoint, and there's people working on this. We're, we're not, but we want to partner with them is, you know, the cost of like a little chip, a little GPS tracking chip with like a teeny low power battery and a teeny little, uh, either cellular ability to transmit and just kind of ping once or twice a day, it's gotten down to like a few bucks. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to work in every use case, but you could argue like a cell phone that's probably wholesale 500 if it's Apple, right? And retail for a thousand bucks or something like you could put a $2 chip in that box and like disintermediate all the standards, go straight to wireless and say, dude, I don't care if the 10 different vendors I'm using, what their technology standards and platforms are. I'm just, I've got my own chip in there. I put it in there at my own manufacturer. Every time they load an iPhone in a box, throw this in there, you know, put a little chip in there and ship it. And I'll just ping this thing on my own and have telemetry, have, have um, uh, position and tracking available to me as an example of how you say, yeah, you could install scanners and create barcodes and they're all the same. And then, you know, yeah, this is not a technology problem. I mean, there's more than enough technology to do this. Just how are you going to get 10 different businesses that all have totally different incentives, sit in a different uh, position within the supply chain, literally in every part of the world, uh, to all agree we're going to adopt 
the Bluetooth standard. I mean, the telcos have actually done a pretty good job, like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. They've got this standard and they all build to it. Um, $7 trillion of global freight, not, not going to happen. <laughs> it's so funny to hear you talk about this because my husband is actually working on this problem, essentially trying to build what he's calling Kubernetes of IoT. So this whole point of creating open standard, open infrastructure for any connected devices, because to your point, you know, we can put a chip and track my stuff, but the problem is it changes hands 15 times and some people are using it and then it breaks down. So uh, I hear about this all the time. Definitely seems like a huge opportunity. My my iPhone and iPad don't use the same plug. I know. Drives me nuts. <laughs> they're, they're both they're both Apple. You know, I mean. So what, what hope do we have? You know, I mean, I'm sure your husband's super talented. He's going to find a solution. I, I, there's so many of us that are rooting for that solution. You know, I would love somebody else to solve this problem and just plug into them. I mean, that that sounds ideal. And we're seeing open standard APIs and middleware pieces and. You know, what's, what's really happening in supply chain right now, kind of if we're on the, 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 the visibility front, telemetry front is there are entire ecosystems developing that are really just plugging into everybody. Um, and they're doing it via EDI. They're doing it via API. They're, they're, they're faking it. They're doing manual data entry, but they're creating a platform by which someone like me can say, all right, you did all, talk about unsexy. You built out all those integrations over and over and over again. I'm just going to build one pipe into you. And have all the data flow flow back and forth. So th- there are solutions like that coming online. One last question, and then I'll uh, let you go. But is there a consistent breakdown point of inefficiency in this whole supply chain? Meaning, like, there's a whether you're vertically integrated, like DHL, or whether you're not. It's just going through so many different steps. Is there a consistent place where the most breakdown happens today? Yeah, I, I, I think it's a variant or just a bigger version of what we're working on. So if you take the idea of shared truckload and, and you think of it, not just literally, but more figuratively, right now, the way the entire global supply chain works is they optimize production, manufacturing, and logistics around the, the lowest common denominator unit of measurement to get something shipped, right? So if, if the cheapest way to ship something is, is a full container load or a full truckload, and that is the least way of, of lowest cost way of shipping something, then I'm optimizing my ordering process, my fulfillment process to the customer, my manufacturing process around the cost of freight. And I think that's kind of crazy. Instead, why don't we flip this over and say, let's, let's have the consumer get something very, very quickly. And I have a vision of a produce and release in a very liquid supply chain. Where you know a manufacturer just says, "I made this many things today." Like maybe the denominator now just becomes the day's production at at, at the longest, and maybe it's only this batch or this run, um, or maybe it's this hour. And those things simply get produced and they get put into the river that is the U.S. supply chain, um, and then gets sent. Uh, it floats down and it shares resources, assets along with um, other kind of like-minded, so to speak, little bits and pieces and finds its way to its end home. Um, that's kind of my big vision of it where, and then I'll, I'll also add into the idea of, of supplier surplus um, where, you know, trucks are just never full uh, and customers are also sadly waiting and holding to get the best buy rate to get their volume discount by buying a whole truck. And even then the truck isn't full because there's just this tension of like, it's got to go, it's got to go. So I imagine a world where nothing is ever like totally full yet never empty and everything is meandering through these rivers, um, making its way from origin to destination, but without ever landing in a real intermediary point or terminal 
where we have enough data and we have enough intelligence and visibility to see it. You know, Walmart was was notorious and absolutely revolutionary in the 80s and 90s to get real visibility over their supply chain. When when they beeped out a product in uh, Bentonville, Arkansas, right, is their, their home base, but they beeped something out in LA, Bentonville knew that right away. And a, and a signal was sent to China to make something new and get the ball rolling um, to not send it to Bentonville to LA, but rather... Bentonville just pushed something to LA right away and let's replenish from, you know, Asia in this case over to Bentonville, like that kind of thinking where if you had God's eye view on the $7 trillion um, and you had enough data, it would be quite sexy, I can assure you. But at the same time, the thing would be, if it's done right, looks really simple and things are just flowing. And I love the river kind of example of just the ease and the grace of it, right? Like you just put your bottle in the river with the message and it'll just float down and a series of algorithms and robots just keep deflecting it where it needs to go. But it shouldn't be taken out of the water, dried up, put on a shelf and then like, okay, there's a new river now, let's take it back, put it back in the water and kind of keep going in and out, in and out the whole way or from terminal to terminal or hub to hub. Instead, we can be intelligent enough to just see this thing really flow all the way in smaller volumes or rather right-sized volumes. So the, the supply chain should become optimized around the shippers and, the cons- and their need to meet the consumer's requirements. As opposed to right now, the tail is wagging the dog, I can assure you. The entire consumer's needs being met as it relates to the shipper getting them their goods is absolutely optimized around the supply chain and the least cost way of getting everybody their goods. Wow. This has been awesome. My head is spinning, which is exactly the point of these conversations. Uh, the last question I'd just like to ask is, is there any piece of advice you've gotten in your life or in your career that really sticks with you and something you kind of take forward? Uh, just generally speaking, um, you know, I'd say like Nike says, just do it. So if there's anybody out there who's thinking about starting something, thinking about trying something new, learning a hobby, I don't care what it is. Uh, There are two kinds of people in this world. There are people who do things and there are people who say they're going to do things and don't ever do things. So making a choice, you know, I get asked a lot, oh, can you mentor, coach me? I want to found something, raising money, whatever. I'm always like, uh, like, that doesn't really matter. The the limiting uh, factor right now is, is just do it. You know, boy, did Nike get it right. So if you just do it, you have some probability of success. If you do not do it, then you have no probability of success. Or if somehow it happens and you win the lottery, it was just purely luck. And I'm not really very interested in, um, in, a, in a lucky or unlucky outcome, right? I'm interested in, in a purpose-driven outcome. I'll take my chances if I fail that at least I, you know, I, I did so kind of um, by choice. I love that. Great words to live by. Well, thank you so much for joining and thank you for your deep, deep domain expertise and knowledge. My pleasure. Thanks, Elaine.